Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. In today's episode, Mitch Light joins us. We will get into Vanderbilt's funding for athletics facilities. That announcement made Monday morning, and we will also talk some Commodore baseball. Mitch appears on our guest line that's brought to you by our friends at Bowling Branch. You spend a third of your life in bed, and how you sleep determines the rest of your day. You've heard me talk for years about Bowling Branch and how much my wife and I love our sheets, but if you've ever wondered why, it's because I love getting into bed every night and feeling the comfort those sheets bring. I never thought I could tell the difference, but when I got Bowling Branch sheets, I figured that out on my own. They're made with 100% organic cotton that's rain-fed and picked by hand. It's the best cotton on earth, period. That's why the sheets feel amazing, and they get softer with every washing and the last a lifetime. Bowling Branch was started by Vandy grads Scott and Missy Tannen. They have millions of thrilled customers, including three U.S. presidents. Try them yourself. You can actually sleep on them for a month and return them if you're not thrilled. Visit BowlingBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. Use the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Vanderbilt swept Missouri in a baseball series on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. The Commodores now improved to 5-1. and one. Highlight of the weekend, Jack Leiter, terrific again, throws seven no-hit innings in that game to start. Mitch Light joins me on today's show. Mitch and I just got finished watching the press conference online with Daniel Deermeyer and Candace Story Lee as some details were given on athletic funding, I guess more so than facilities. There were some things hinted at, but I guess that's a good way to frame the conversation. This is all pretty fresh. The press conference ended about 30 minutes ago, so I think we're still processing our thoughts. But Mitch, let's start with you. What were your thoughts on what you heard today? Um, thought it was uh, maybe not the most eloquent way to say it, but thought it was pretty cool. Um, you know, we'd heard, I knew something was coming, um, had heard, yeah, well, first of all, a lot of, there was a lot of hinting, a lot of talks, rumors, first quarter of the new year. And I guess this first quarter is just ending. The number I had heard recently was 150 million, uh, 50 million donations and a hundred from the school. So obviously this was uh, far more than that, having already secured the 200 million, which I think is, is a big step. So I think it's, it's a great positive, a great step, a necessary step uh, shows Chancellor Deermeyer, you know, he talked the talk and he's walking the walk and, and, and great job by Candace Lee and the, the athletic department. And yeah, I think, I think it's a, don't want to understate it or overstate it. It's a huge, huge step forward um for for the uh school's athletics department i've been given the 300 million number in confidence i guess a couple of months ago so the amount didn't surprise me at all i think the funding and i don't think they outlined this entirely today but what i was told it would be one-third debt one-third a contribution from the school and one-third fundraising so if people are wondering about the mechanics of fundraising I'm not going to swear to you that's the right answer, but that is something I've heard from a couple places 
Uh, so that's another interesting component of this as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, we, we don't need to rehash years in the past, but it, it kind of, the one thing I always wondered, and, you know, back when I was in school, there was a theory, you know, in the early 90s, came in 89, Chancellor, and again, I don't want to rehash the whole history of Vanderbilt Athletics, Joe B. White was the chancellor, and the, the whole theory was that each department had to stand on its own. Athletic department had to stand on its own, just like the English department, whatever. And, and, and that's why they wouldn't, you know, allocate all this money towards athletics. And we basically heard the same thing for years. And uh, Joe Rexford has a story that's that's live on the athletic right now. And I can I could find the quote. Basically, it was from the chancellor. It was just like. Um, just moving money from one bank account to the next for uh, yeah moving money from one bank account and spending it so like the money that is allocated towards spending 600 million dollars on dorms and in campus improvements that money comes from the same pot it's the university it's the university's money and that, that was always kind of my question is you know why can't some of that be used for athletics and, and now we're finding out that it can be it just needed some initiative from the chancellor and some leadership um from the chancellor so um yeah, I don't, I don't, not into fundraising, the mechanics of it and all that and, and, and how it's going to be done. But the the bottom line, the dollar amount seems to be uh, significant. Yeah, I think the difference in this more than anything was just for once you've got a chancellor who's bold enough to take some steps. And maybe it's like politics, right? Uh, maybe he would like to do a lot more and you got to take your small wins at a time and you can't throw out everything at once. Maybe you have to keep creeping towards what it is you want. Um, you know, I, I, I'm so if you want $500 million or something like that, then maybe you have to go $300 million, uh, to start. I, I'm not saying that's the case, but the point is, I think that it took a, a bold chancellor to be able to take a stand, and I'm sure he's going to take criticism on this campus for that, right? I mean, I, I think that's one reason Nick Zephos wouldn't do it. Uh, but anyway, I guess the point is to me, the difference is you have leadership from the chancellor's office that you haven't had in a long time. And we can sit here and debate whether it's enough or not. That's not really the point that I'm getting at right now. Uh, but the point is, I think just the fact that a chancellor got a, a pretty phenomenal win like that uh, is an indication of where some things are heading. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. I did not get the sense that it was the end by any stretch. Um, there's certain things they want to do in the short term, certain things they want to do in the long term. Um, and I guess that will be determined by how successful this next fundraising phase is. I just know, you know, have talked to some people and heard from people, you know, obviously the fact that the university's committed that hundred million or made a big first step is made it a lot easier to, to raise money. Uh, obviously, if, if, you, if people have been reluctant over the years because the university hasn't shown the commitment, well, when the university shows it and others are showing it, it makes it a lot easier for, for people to have that kind of money to write that kind of check. Well, and there's a lot of different ways that you can look at things, right? I mean, one way is, well, they didn't give a lot of specifics. And, and yes, that's true. I, I do think that I would prefer them to do it the way that they did it today. At least tell people, hey, we've got this out here and here's a carrot that we've committed to publicly uh, in, in a very definite way, right? In other words, in, in the past, what we have gotten has been David Williams saying things are coming and the climate is good for this and whatever. None of that ever got realized. That's different than having a chancellor step out and saying, yeah, we're going to do this and here's an amount. Um, we can fill in the blanks with some stuff later. But but I think to me, as I process, it's, it's, that's my biggest takeaway. People can criticize them for not laying out more specifics. Um, and, and historically, that's fair, right? 
but this was a step that they've not taken before, and I think that's significant. Yeah, I mean, there were some specifics, and I'm sure they don't know all the specifics, and they're gonna you're gonna start to do things and realize you need to do things a different way. And I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of my personality. If you're gonna find fault with what they did today, then you're just maybe never gonna be happy about certain things. I thought it was a huge step in the right direction. Well, I, I don't know that that's entirely fair, right? I mean, you've got different frames to the the picture, right? You've got what they're up against in terms of um, other schools in the league and, and will it be enough. I, I don't know that I would characterize it entirely like you would, but I would also say uh, to sit there and yawn and say that's a big bunch of nothing, that's not fair either. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know why anyone would say that. It's a big bunch of nothing. It was, you know, I, I think they've made clear and Clark Lee's made it clear and that and there was a question about it. I don't know if it was your question or they're not – looking to have maybe the nicest building, football building. I'm sure it'll be nice and I'll have bells and whistles. They want to do what's best for them. And Vanderbilt's always been different in the SEC and will do things that best serves itself and doesn't care if Texas A&M has, you know, a, a 600, I don't even know what, they have, what their football building is. So, um, yeah, I, I think w what they have will be very nice, sort of like what baseball has is extremely nice. Um, and I don't, you know, I Never been in another SEC baseball facility, but um, I can't imagine there's one nicer or more efficient, especially with the space they have. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's moving them in a much better direction. And my goodness, I'm trying to think. I, I, I mean, they haven't spent anywhere close to this in the time you and I have followed their athletic programs. I mean, this is a, again, this is a, compared to what's been done since you and I have followed their athletic programs, I mean, what was the the thing that they did for Memorial Gym back when Kevin Stallings first got there? That was fifteen million dollars at the time, twenty twenty years ago. Do you have memories of that? Yeah, I don't. Remember, I don't remember the money. Um, yeah. You know, that's, obviously they they renovated the a lot of the interior, some of the interior, and built all those coaches' offices and stuff. Um, I'd say the two major things that have happened are that. Um, aside from baseball, aside from the new baseball stadium, the baseball facility, um, were the indoor practice facility for football and the upgrades and Memorial. But other than that, really, you know, not much. There's been other stuff like that. I guess the, the golf over at Legends Club, the golf building, I don't think was cheap and stuff like that. Um, I think maybe my, when I was in school, I think they built the Curry, the tennis center and stuff like that. But as far as major stuff, I would think it was, it would be the indoor, indoor practice facility and Memorial gym. Yeah, I think, well, Hawkins Field too, right? I, I don't remember how much yeah, that cost. I said, I, oh, aside, I'm sorry. From yeah. aside from baseball. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, uh, including baseball in this for a minute, I think the thing behind the outfield cost, what, 11 to 13 million? Yeah, I think that was about right, yeah. And the indoor practice facility was what? I want to say 31. 31. Is that right? So, 31, I think. Yeah, I mean, add the, so in the last decade, the, the two most significant things they've done are the baseball and football indoor practice facilities, um, well, the baseball building in the indoor practice facility to better articulate that. So those have been, what, about $40 million put together, 40, 45. So this is still, what, eight times that? I mean, that's, again, you, you can say what you want and you can be critical and some people will. And I, I do think, by the way, there are, there, I, I fall squarely in the middle of this. Uh, I, I have friends that are on both extreme ends and, you know, I think my job is to try to look at it from all sides and 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 figure out okay, what what what's the take on this? Uh, but take it however you want. 
Uh, it, it is a sign that the climate has changed either because the chancellor willed it to, into existence or, or, or however you want to frame it. I think it's a, it's a big step. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. I guess now the thing is we just wait for specifics, right? And I think that from what I have heard, the and, and they didn't want to go into details, and so maybe the info I got has changed in a couple of weeks. My understanding was the plan for the football building will go in the closed end zone uh, they'll probably knock out about 10,000 seats. Again, that's what I was hearing a couple weeks ago. They left themselves some wiggle room in that today, so I don't know if something has changed or they're thinking about doing something in the open end zone that would have gone in the closed end zone and, and keeping some seats there. Um, but whatever the case is, I think we both expect that building to be in one of the end zones, and what I've been hearing is it probably going to closed. Yes, uh, I heard the same thing, and I think the, at first – Glance, you'd say, oh, well, it makes more sense to build a football building in the open end just the the just because of the space. But I think it actually with with where McGugan is in tying the locker rooms and the training rooms and, and all that stuff, um, connecting maybe the football stadium to McGugan, uh, blocking off just the only, you know, if, if anyone's been on the main campus, that, that's been a, a kind of a focus there, uh, cutting off some of those roads and building more, you know, walking paths and, and stuff there and, you know, if you think about it, Jess Neely doesn't serve a ton of purpose as far as a road. Um, it basically just goes in the, the parking lot at McGugan. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's what I kind of had heard of football uh, building, uh, again, in the in the, the, the south end zone, the, the closed end zone. What I'm interested to know is, like, the locker rooms that they're doing now, will, will so would a football building kind of morph, like, physically go, like, right into the new locker rooms there? I know they built a new training room about three or four years ago, which I've been in, which is pretty, you know, pretty new and state of the art there. So would they keep the training room where it is and all that? So a, a lot of questions about where, you know, fit where, where specifically things will go. But, you know, that's they've they've hired the the, the people, the the architects and in, in the, the companies involved with that already. Yeah. What I've heard, again, they left themselves wiggle room to change their minds. And by the way, I'm not being critical of that. Right. As long as they do it, they, they do it. And if they need more time to figure out the right answer or consider some options, I'm okay with that. But what I had heard is that McGugan will be very much gutted and remade. Now, the specifics of what that's going to look like, I don't know. And the training room question you have is one that I have, too, because I think that was a six, seven, eight million dollar project, what, around five, six, seven years ago. That was one that took them a while to complete. So I don't know if you, do you want to do you want to uproot all that and then and then do it near somewhere else and, um, you know, sink all the money that you just spent on that? I don't know the answer, but that's a question I have, too. 
Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that old. I could be wrong. Um, the, the new training room, but, uh, yeah. And I, you know, they can be very creative architects with, with the way they do things now. Um, with the, with the efficient use of space there. Um, the, the interesting thing is where, where will the new practice facility go? Will it be where the, pra- like, let's say they've got McGugan and, and, and rebuild it kind of where it is, or maybe if they're going to close just nearly, they move it up a little bit. And then you have right now, I mean, obviously you've been there. A lot of people don't know. They've got two practice fields in the back. One's turf and one's grass. Most of the stuff is done on the turf field. Um, those are the ones adjacent to Natchez Trace. So I don't know if you build a practice bubble right there and then have one field, um, for, for, for outdoor practice, because you don't want to have just a, you know, indoor practice facility there. So they'll, they'll have to get creative with that space as well. I bet you what they do based on just some things that I have heard over the last couple of months, I bet you they will enclose one of the practice fields right now. Um, I don't know if that'll be with the grass field or the turf field. And I think the other one will be remaining outdoors. And of course, I think those end zones, uh, it's not a full regulation-linked field, so I think that may be part of it, too, is to make it you know, 100 yards and then, of course, 10 yards for each of the end zones. So that comes into play somewhere, too. But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that – and I thought Candace Lee did make a good comment. She said – and I'm sure this wasn't like, oh, it just dawned on her, but she mentioned that Saturday they had an outdoor practice plan. And as soon as you had thunderstorm and lightning and all those things, you had some safety issues that popped into play and – you know, you had a couple hundred yards to go from here to there. You got to take equipment um, across the way. You can't just cut through the field, right? You can't cut a straight path. You've got to go, I guess, up that sidewalk and then around the walkway that leads into it. So, um, again, I'm not claiming that, hey, this just occurred to her while they got a practice uh, rained out or, or moved because of rain. But I, I thought it was timely of her to mention that uh, in, in terms of pointing out an example of something they needed to do. So I think having that right next to their practice space is going to save them time in terms of efficiency and, and having to move all that stuff, obviously. But um, what else stood out to you? And we haven't hit any of the basketball stuff yet either, by the way. But what else stood out to you that you heard today? Um. I don't know, kind of the directness of the chancellor. And, and again, I, I, I'd seen some of this type of comments in Joe's story. It was just, he was very matter of fact. He's like, we're not, this isn't a plan. Like we're going to do this. We're going, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And, you know, we're going to do this. And he seemed like he was determined from the, the point he got here. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just that that's basically it. It's just that it wasn't um, it, the, 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 and we've already hit on this sort of just the way the chancellor was able to get things done where not not nothing else radically changed within the university. Like under Nick Zeppos, like I don't know if you, the, the way you said it was just afraid to step on toes, didn't want to ruffle any feathers, just want to kind of go about doing his business uh, where Chancellor Deermeyer comes in and says, OK, the university's doing great from this this standpoint. Why can't we do it this way? The money exists. Let's just, as he said, put it in one from one bank account to the next bank account. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I asked today was about baseball that they kind of held out for, you know, we'll leave that open as a possibility down the road, but I don't think it's in the first phase or two of this. I did get the impression as I think about this more and, and read some comments on our board, and you've got some people that on our board who um, are boosters have some connections and things and sometimes will add some insight without adding their name to it. But 
I get the feeling that part of the funding thing, the funding was always the issue, right? And the fundraising, like if people wanted to give to athletics, you had to jump through hoops or you just couldn't give or whatever. It feels to me like now it's in an atmosphere where, okay, if somebody is out there who wants to give $50 million for baseball and, and, and have it fund this, this, and this, um, that, that might be an option down the road where it wasn't in the past. In other words, I felt an open-endedness with some other things that like, yeah, that's not in phase one or two of what we're doing, uh, but that may be an option if somebody wants to fund it. Maybe I'm taking liberty with that, but that's the vibe I've maybe kind of gotten from this uh, as to where it heads forward. Is it, yeah, we're not just limiting this to what we talked about today. Maybe some other things are options if we've got donors who are willing. I don't know if I've taken license there, but that's sort of how I'm interpreting this. No, I, I think you're accurate there. And um, Joe, Joe's story, he mentions that specifically about the, you know, the, a lot was made rightfully so with the National Commodore Club being bumped from McGugan over to Vanderbilt Plaza, uh, or the Vanderbilt, um, the what's in it, the, the whatever, the hotel across the street. Um, but it's back, yeah, yeah, is is back now in McGugan. Mark Carter and his team over there. Um, and that, you know, I, I don't know all the the the, uh, the logistics of it, but it does seem like it's a lot more streamlined with athletic fundraising um, than, than it was two, three, four years ago when the, when those changes were made. My biggest disappointment, um, and, and and maybe this is too hard, if they if because if they do something, then then who cares, right? You get it done and you move on. I wanted to hear more, and I understand that this was more focused on capital projects, but we don't get access to the chancellor that often, and so you have to ask. I've always thought it seems like an easy win for them. Uh, now, now, that being political pressure at the school aside, I don't know what the chancellor's up against there. And again, maybe this is take your big win today and fight that battle another day. But I wanted to hear more about, hey, we've opened up priority, priority registration for, for players. I've just had players tell me, you know, you have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to go practice. And, and you have to skip out of practice for labs and things like that. I'm just... I'm wanting the school to do more, and I'm hoping it will in terms of just making things easier for its kids. They don't require brick and mortar. And again, I'm not telling you that's not coming, but I did give the chancellor an opportunity to address that if that had been decided on. Uh, and clearly that's something that has not been, I guess, fixed at this point in terms of priority registration for kids. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I heard your question, and I, I really can't speak to that. Um, but about getting up to early go to pra practice, I mean, you mean just having early morning practice? Because a lot of schools practice in the morning. Yeah, uh, but I just think that every other, other school has priority registration on campus. I mean, I, I, it's just it's something the other 13 SEC schools do. Um, it's something that if their focus is on student athletes, which they have mentioned that over and over, they said our student athletes take priority over over fans. I mean, they, did, they didn't put it that bluntly, but I, I think that's clearly the message is we're going to work on things that impact the players in our program first, and that's going to take priority over fans. And I'm not being critical of that, right? I, I do think the fans deserve some things based on long-sufferingness, but I, I can't tell you that that point of view is wrong. But if you're going to go there, I just think that is an easy thing that you can do. And look, th this has not been a time without progress, right? They got... Um, you know, 15 years ago, they couldn't get anybody in school early, and that cost them recruits. Then they let them have three. Now that's been moved up to nine. So, again, that's an example of the bar moving. But that's one big hurdle that I think that they need to clear next, and, and I hope to see the school do that 
uh, is make it more like it is at other schools to where kids uh, have a little bit of priority on registration to where they, they don't have to skip practices or uh, maybe you have more flexibility with practice time or however that looks. Yeah, I mean, I, we don't need to keep reacting. I think the practice time is just specific to the coaches. I mean, they, you know, they, was it midway through the Derek Mason era, started going with the early morning practices. I think they always used to practice in the afternoon under Bobby Johnson, and, and, and I think Franklin's practices were in the afternoon. I know there's been a lot of written about a lot of, you know, the science of practicing in the morning and, and all that stuff. So, but um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't, don't disagree. Just don't have anything to add to it. Yeah. And I, I think we've hit most of the angles to death. Uh, so unless you've got something else, let's talk baseball. No, I'm good. Vanderbilt. I guess this is a good way to put it, right? Um, I think in terms of contending for the league title, Vanderbilt needed to sweep Missouri, and it's hard to put that on any program. To, to sweep a series against anybody is not easy. Uh, to do it on the road, even against by far the worst team in the league, uh, is, is not easy. But it's also not easy to win the league. So I think a good way to put it is Vanderbilt took care of business in a way that it needed to in Columbia this weekend if it hoped to contend for the title. Um, you know, Jack Leiter, of course, was Jack Leiter again. Had a no-hitter. Through seven, and, and frankly, and I'm not criticizing the decision. I think it was the right one. I, I have a feeling that if Leiter had stood out there, he would have finished the game and no hit Missouri. But in other words, Vanderbilt needed to take care of business, and, and it did it this weekend. Yeah, I, I think big picture, you're right when you look at um, the games that you need to win. I will say, though, that this Vanderbilt team, because of its starting pitching, has the ability more so than probably any Vanderbilt team to sweep anybody anytime, you know. Whereas if they somehow let this one slip up, I'm not saying they could sweep, you know, you wouldn't, you don't predict sweeps necessarily, except in this case, we're in the road against the worst team. But I, I think this team has the real ability, not saying they will, but to get on a, a winning streak in the SEC because of how good it's starting pitching is. But no doubt you went into this series expecting um, them, especially the first two games. I, I think there was a lot of encouraging signs, probably, you know, you feel free to chime in, Chris, but the, the Sunday pitching performance after the last two against, you know, good teams, Oklahoma State and South Carolina, not getting it done from a pitching standpoint. I thought Maldonado was fantastic. I mean, he he was, aside from Leiter and Rocker, obviously doing their thing. He was, to me, the story of the weekend. Yeah, he was unhittable except that weird play where there was a squib. I don't think I've ever seen that. Where there, was it? Was it? Was it Noland? And Keegan, who let it go by, or was it Nolan and Carter, the, the squib ground ball that neither one of them got to, then realized that uh, neither of them picked it up and the kid got a double on. But that was the only base runner against Maldonado. So I thought he was fantastic. And um, because the bullpen, we all know how many good arms there were, but really some of the guys had not been pitching up to their capabilities. Um, and it looks like the staff has a lot of confidence in Maldonado and he really delivered. Yeah, we had guests from out of town uh, Saturday, so that, that's literally the only game all year that I haven't seen at least a couple innings of. I was going to ask you what your impression of Thomas Schultz was. I mean, the box score line looked fine to me, but I, I don't know how that looked when he was out there on the hill. Yeah, I watched most of his pitches. He was much, obviously much better, although, you know, he was really good, was it, for two full innings against South Carolina and three. He, he gave up some... First of all, Chris, you get spoiled after watching those guys Friday and Saturday or Thursday and Friday when there's almost no contact. I mean, pitchers give up contact, and that's why you have fielders out there. Uh, but he gave up some hard contact. Where, you know, balls were in, in just line drives here or there uh, to outfielders and stuff, but, but was much better 
Um, again, Missouri's not not a great hitting team, uh, but I'm sure that was a big confidence boost for him because he's shown he can get some shutdown innings against good teams. But to to get, I think he got through five innings and they went three innings of of Maldonado and then one inning of Luke Murphy. The Colwick injury, I'm interested to see how that affects them because he'd been playing so well. I know Nolan was Nolan the guy that had the error in the ninth. I mean, it, it didn't matter at that point because they're up 11 runs. I believe it was. I, I didn't know how he looked on on Sunday because he didn't have like a ton of chances in the field that I saw. Yeah, he he's made his routine plays, um, except that millionaire. So you know, there's some some nothing stands out. I thought Colwick and Young had turned some really impressive double plays in the first, you know, 10, 11 games or whatever it was. Um, I think there was maybe one double play over the weekend that, that I saw. So um, was Nolan – and recru- I know he's recruited as like a third baseman infielder. Did he play shortstop in high school? Um, I, I, I would imagine I don't, he did. I don't remember that. Yeah, so, you know, there's some mechanics of being a second baseman that that are a little bit different. I'm sure that he'll, he'll learn. Um, but, you know, he, again, he made one – I think he made one error, but nothing stood out to me as, as being really good or really bad defensively. I'm looking at the offensive stat sheet, and we're getting to the point where I guess you have some players that are nearing 100 plate appearances. Maybe it's an arbitrary designation to be, but that's, you know, once you get up in that territory, it becomes more significant. I'm looking at the on-base percentages across the roster. Keegan, 561. Of course, he's he missed, what, five or six games, um, six to be exact. Um, or seven, actually. You've got Bradfield at 500. He started every game. you got Thomas at 415. Even as much as he strikes out, he gets on base a ton. C.J. Rodriguez at 508. He, I mean, and, and he he's really crushed. starting to thrash the ball, yeah. Rod Rodriguez and uh, Bradfield were very impressive over the weekend. Gonzalez at 424. That's something that he had a good all-base percentage in the limited time we saw him in 2019. But you weren't sure if that would carry over, given there's been a lot of swing and miss to his game. Uh, but but it has so far. Bolger at 417. Bolger's quietly started to become a contributor. I, I think that the fan base, a lot of people are kind of skeptical on him and why he's in the lineup. I, I don't share that sentiment because you see the gifts and how hard he hits the ball. Uh, you see it in 15 walks to 11 strikeouts. The pitching, and we haven't talked much about right, locker or locker. I did it again. Rocker or lighter today, because frankly, at this point, that's a built-in expectation. And I think sometimes you you tend to spend your time on the variables you don't know. But my goodness, Mitch, I look at the lineup top to bottom. I think the fact that this group can really get hit or can really hit, I mean, you and I know it, but I don't know if nationally and around baseball, people have picked up on how good a lineup this is. But boy, I, I think they've got one. It's not 2019. Because you don't have two guys at the top, but one trademark of that team was there's no easy out, and I'm starting to see that with this one too. Yeah, I think it happens with, especially in college baseball, when you, except for the few, you know, that we we know the national media members that really follow the sport. But other than that, people stick to storylines and, and narratives and stuff, which is fine. Vanderbilt's getting tremendous press with lock with lighter and rocker, and lighter's been all over the place. Um, so that's what they're going to focus on. But you're right. It's a it's a very good lineup. And what it does, and I, I think um, – I forgot who did the game Thursday night. It was Ben McDonald, I think, mentioned a couple times too. It's like when, when 
a lot of times on Friday nights in SECs, if you get in years past or, you know, any, even this year, you, you get two aces. Those guys know they have to be almost perfect because they're, they're going against another ace a lot of times. And, um, you know, there could be a 2-1 game or a 3-2 game. And, and quite frankly, Vanderbilt had that in the, the opener against South Carolina. But I just think, like, Vanderbilt gets a four spot on the top of the the, the first and the second game. And, I mean, I've, I've never pitched really at that level, obviously. Um, but that's got to do wonders for Leiter just to, you know, just go out there relax. You know, you got a four-run four lead right off the bat. So the, the point is when this offense is, is showing can score some runs, it takes – not that these guys feel a ton of pressure because they're so good. It just takes pressure off of them. And then once the offense gets going a little bit, if they're up three, four runs with those guys on the mound, they're not feeling any pressure and they can relax. Did we see Luke Murphy this weekend? Yes. He pitched the uh, ninth inning of the uh, game three. Okay. So. Yeah, I missed that. Um, he looked yes, like he looked before. Okay. Yeah. See, that, that's yeah. another thing where – I still have some questions about that, but every time he throws one of those, it makes me think they've got an answer there. Yeah, he wa- he might have walked a guy. Yeah, I think he did because he he only had two walks coming in or something like that. But um, he might have walked a guy. But yeah, there's n- no issues there. So um, yeah, I mean, I think clearly right now he's the he's their closer. I don't see that changing anytime soon. And it, it was a tight game. It was a two-one game. Um, Vander was losing for a. a a lot of it, and it was two one, and then then it was three one. So it was tight. So I mean, that, you clearly you, you knew that they were sending out the guys they trusted the most. So go with Maldonado, three straight innings, and then um, and then Luke Murphy. That's clearly right now they're kind of their hierarchy in the pen. What do you make of the fact that Hugh Fisher has only thrown five times? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I w- maybe would have thrown Fisher Friday night, Thursday night, or Friday night. Um, just to get him an inning uh, when they're trying to preserve the lighter, the, the team no hitter. Um, I don't fit, I don't know if it's just the lack of matchups, lack of pressure situations where they've needed him uh, against the, to get an out against a lefty. I could, I would imagine that he is the, in a, in a key situation against the lefty, he's the guy they'll be going to. Um, he's been effective. He hasn't been wild. It's not like they, wouldn't trust him in that situation. So I don't know. I, I, I've thought about it. And I really don't know. Yeah. You've outlined it about the way that I've processed it too. I, I don't know. And he's only, every time he's thrown, it's been an inning at a time. Now that might be, again, kid just came off Tommy John surgery. It does seem like when they've used him, I don't know if it's just been coincidence, if they wanted to, to find spots where they felt he's been effective, but I mean, he's been really good so far. Control is always going to be a little bit of an issue for him, but three walks in five innings isn't egregious at that point. A lot of pitchers could do that. Jack Leiter, Kubar Rocker could do that. So to me, I don't know if that's a thing where they're using caution or they're just holding him as a bullet in case they've got a situation they need that hasn't arisen. But let's face it, Mitch, most of these games where they go to the ninth, there's not been a lot of drama, but I'm interested to see what they do with him. And two other guys in that vein too, Miles Garrett, I've seen him warming up in, in key spots during weekend games uh, that obviously shows potential intent to use him in those spots. And Patrick Riley, I guess if there's like a sleeper for that extra starter spot that they might need in a, in a regional or something like that or SEC tournament, he's the guy that I'm watching there. 
Yeah, I'm with you on Miles Garrett. He's I don't know if I've seen every one of his pitching appearances, but he's looked very good there. So I yeah, I, I don't that's a you know, I don't know his next media availability. I don't know how upfront Tim would be about that, about asking uh, about Hugh Fisher and if it's a um you know, I, like you said, he's far enough removed that I mean, I think he's got the clean clean bill of health and he can he can he's obviously thrown five innings. So, uh, I I'd be surprised if we don't see him in some big spots um, maybe this week, even this weekend in LSU. Yeah, and again, this is a spot where they've got so many arms, right? And so you can you can hold guys back or whatever. I mean, when you've got big leads and you've got two starters who go so deep into games to start you off on the weekend, it just makes for a situation that I would I would like to look around and see how many other schools in the country are in this spot because I, I don't – Look in the conference, I don't know what anybody else is. You've got LSU's got two aces in Hill and Marceau, but Hill's been uneven at times. Um, I don't know if Marceau's gone as long as these guys have, but they are truly in a unique situation. There might be other teams, you know, like, for example, the, the thought is that Mich- or Michigan, uh, Mississippi State has got more pitching depth than anybody else in the league. And my question is, does it really, or is that just the fact that Vanderbilt starters go longer mean we haven't, had to see Vanderbilt use as many arms as State has. That's Really, that's one of the questions I have. They're in a position where they've got so much pitching depth, it kind of obscures some of the answers we'd like to get to, if that makes sense. Yeah, at some point, and maybe that's what they're trying to do, like I said with Maldonado pitching those key innings, it doesn't matter how many good pitchers you have, you need to come up, you need to define roles. You can't be three-quarters of the season and kind of not have established who you're fifth inning guy is on a Sunday or your eighth inning guy on a Friday after rocker goes seven innings. Um, it's sort of like in basketball, you might have 10, 11 really good players or 12, but at some point you got to have an eight or nine man rotation. Not everyone, not everyone can play, not everyone can pitch. Um, so, so some good, really good pitchers are going to get left behind. Um, and part of it is, you know, like I said, not playing that many close games. Um, and, you know, again, we'll, we'll see the, Entering, I know LSU's one and five, but going down to Baton Rouge is never easy. They're they're entering a uh, you know a stretch here, so I think over the next three four weeks we'll probably see a lot of these these roles defined. And it just is there room for a Miles Garrett? I think there would be for him, but as you mentioned, there's just so many guys they could go to. Well, the other guy that's really in that in between, and I get I get a lot of questions about this is Ethan Smith and what do they do with him? Again, is is the fact that he's not being used? Is that a lack of confidence or is that just uh? Okay, well, you know we've we've got these guys going so long, and uh, you know Schultz has, has pitched some good games. Again, there's just not many innings to go around, and I guess that's to, to me he's the wild card on the pitching staff right now. His season could go a lot of ways, and I'm not sure which way it goes. Talking about Schultz or Smith? I'm talking about Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's been. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I, he's he hasn't been great. Isn't hasn't exactly been you know shutting everybody down, uh, but he does have a proven track record. Uh, he, he has more experience than a lot of these guys here. So, you know, he, he's a guy that we've all thought like, let's say Schultz struggled this past Sunday and they decided to make a switch on a Sunday starter. We, you know, he seemed like a likely candidate. Um, so, uh, you know, is he a fourth starter in a regional who knows? Um, so, you know, I, he, he's too good not to have a role, but he is sort of in that Hugh Fisher camp where we're, you know, he, he's a, an older guy in this team that we have not really seen as much as we thought we would. Was it, 
two, two or three years ago, I think that, and look, they're completely different pitchers, but didn't Patrick Raby have a start like Leiter's had where he got like 25, 30, 35 innings into the season and hadn't given up an extra base hit? Because that's where Leiter is right now. Yeah, something like that. I don't remember what it was. Obviously, his other he wasn't as <laughs> shutting people down as much as is um, as Jack is. But yeah, something something like that. Uh, but I don't remember the specifics. I mean, it's like watching Greg Maddox with worse control and and better stuff. Because like nobody squares him up, right? I mean, I've seen yeah. him squared up a few times, uh, but but they're always balls hit right at people. It's almost like they. They know if somebody hits one hard, this is where it's going to be. And you see, when balls are hit hard, a lot of times you don't see fielders have to move a lot. I've seen a lot of baseball. and This is an area where balls are getting out of parks a lot, too. You look at home run totals in the league. Let me just give you some right now. Because uh, I thought Vanderbilt hit a lot, and you start comparing it to other teams in the league. Vanderbilt has hit... 33 home runs. You've got LSU with 44, Arkansas with 40, and you got a bunch of teams right there in that 32, 33 range. But in an era where balls are traveling further than they have traveled before, what he's doing is incredible in a dead ball era. But what he's doing in this era just d- defies superlatives at this point. Yeah, this is an unbelievable stretch. It's, I don't care how good you are. You don't expect to give up no hits and, in, in, you know, two SEC starts. Um, but I was trying to – I was talking to my son about this, and I don't really – I didn't have all the stats in front of me. It's like Vanderbilt's had a lot of great Friday night pitchers or doesn't matter what day you start, elite pitchers. And But, like, Sonny Gray was great, but I'm sure we could go over his junior year, and there were starts where he gave up three, four runs, and and, you know, it's just – it just doesn't. This doesn't happen. It's just like literally every time Jack Leiter and, and Kumar have pitched, they've they've been even if they haven't had their great stuff, they've been extremely effective. And Kumar gave up two runs, like one earned to South Carolina, but I think there's one ball hit of the out hit out of the infield. So, you know, we'll see how long this this wave goes on for. But it's for a program that's had such great pitching, this is just another level. Yeah, and there's a lot of great pitching staffs in the league right now. And I think that we look at ERA a lot, right? And frankly, scoring varies widely across teams and ballparks. What's an error in one park is a hit in another. And, and I think we tend to not look at runs as much as we look at earned runs. These kids have given up seven runs between them, period. Four earned runs. And you look around the league, and, and with all the talk of pitching, and, and I – I will also say this with the caveat that some of these teams have played tougher schedules than Vanderbilt, but Vanderbilt's given up 58 runs all year. Not earned runs, just runs. The next lowest total in the league right now is 75. That's at Kentucky, where they have played uh, 21 games. Vanderbilt's played 22, so not a big difference. But point is, you got some great pitching staffs in this league, and they have lapped the field in terms of runs they've given up so far. Yeah. I mean, it's just life's a lot easier when you've got two pitchers who just you don't expect them to give more than one or two give up more than one or two runs. It's just been uh, you know we keep, we keep saying the same thing so many different ways, but um, the, the numbers right now are just absurd. What what is the team? What what's the team? You might have just said this. I was sure. looking up looking up stats myself. What is the team ERA? Two nineteen. Okay, because what did we say? We had this discussion before the season. I think you said. 
we had an over under and you said maybe three because there's games where you'll have a like a pitcher, you know, end of a game, give up three or four runs, which has happened at times. But, um, you know, we'll see how sustainable that is. I expect their midweek games to keep that number down. Um, but that that's that's absurd right there. I want to say my final answer on that was like 285 because three didn't seem right to me. But, you know, it, like you, like we said, it just takes a couple of bad starts where you leave some freshmen in to take a beating. Uh, to get that up there, but they're 219. I think what's impressive, um, they were up in 270 or 280 for a while, and it, it's come down since then, I think. Yeah, well, you know, the, the runs, the three runs on on, on Sat, uh, I get the day, the Thursday, the Friday night were unearned, and, and Rocker only gave up one earned run. And so when you give up, what, two unearned runs, uh, two, two run, earned runs in a weekend series, that's going to help. Every pitching staff in the league, except Missouri, which is close, has struck out at least one guy in the inning. I mean, it's like I said, it's it's a it's a totally different area. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you follow it. it. Seems like Vanderbilt's striking out a lot, but I think that's just, and I know it's, that's the case in the major league level too. But I think that's just the where we are right now, especially in the SEC with so many good pitching. They've struck out two hundred and five times. Florida struck out two hundred six. LSU two twenty six. Arkansas two thirteen. A and M two twenty eight. South Carolina two fourteen. Tennessee two twenty nine. Then you've got a few teams just behind them uh, in the high 190s. Uh, the low man on the totem pole is Georgia. They've struck out 154 times, but also hit a league low, or excuse me, 13th best, 23 home runs. So sometimes you trade off contact for power. Uh, oh, by the way, Georgia has 126 runs. That's also the lowest total in the league. So I guess this is a, a weird way to put it, kind of flipping it on its head, but not striking out sometimes comes at a cost. And I think most teams, big league level down, are making that trade-off right now and not really losing sleep over it. Yeah, it's just the, the game has changed. Um, I don't know what made me think of this, but there was one year going way back. Do you remember the year that Vanderbilt hit into, like, so many double plays? I think, like, back in the Andrew Giobi years, I'm not trying to pick on him, but I think there was one year, and I, it was just fluky. I would love to go look that back, look up. Just anecdotally, it seems like they must have led the nation in, in grounding into double plays. Does that ring a bell at all? I do. I want to say it was 2010. Um, I will look that up. That was 2010 would have been the year that uh, – that was the year before they went to Omaha. And that was the year they ended things in Tallahassee. I want to say hit yeah. a couple double plays and key spots in that one, too. Um, I'm gonna see I don't know if it's old. a slow team or whatever. Maybe maybe that's a, a product of not striking out a lot. And, uh, the the one of the negatives or one of the positives of you know the strikeout you can only make one out on a strikeout. But uh, I just remember it was just so many times that season. Oh yeah, I was right. They grounded or hit into ninety double plays. That's crazy. I mean, it's like two game almost, right? They, they <laughs> were 46 and 20, so that was, uh, they played 60. It's almost a, a double play and a half per game. Yes, which is, you know, in, in a lot of those games, they're not batting in the ninth inning, too. You know, and that's, that's another thing I wanted to get at. People have asked me, are you concerned about all the guys that are leaving on base? And I'm, I'm watching, I couldn't watch the game Saturday, but I had my game tracker on the phone and I'm looking in there, you know, they got 11 guys left on base through five or six innings or whatever. And we've seen a lot of that this year, but I would rather have that because it means you're getting guys on base. You get a lot of guys on base, you're going to leave a lot of guys on. So people have asked me, do, do you see that as a concern? No, I don't. I don't. The only time I see that as a concern is if I see a team that's really pressing over it. And the best example would have been the 2007 uh 
regional in Nashville, where I think that that team just got crushed under the weight of expectations and didn't respond well. And you saw guys that you could tell they were, I think, visibly stressing. Unless that happens, no, I'm not worried about all the left on base. I'd rather have that because it points your, to your ability to generate base runners, which translates into runs. So right now, if you're worried about that, I think you're you're sweating about nothing in my mind. Yeah. I, again, would you rather them not get on base? Like, like, I get it. People get frustrated by it. And there was a stretch in the Missouri game, I think at the Saturday game, where they had bases loaded maybe three times in four innings and didn't score. At least the runner on third with less than two outs and I think three innings. It's like you're doing something right to get guys on base. And everyone loves those clutch two-out hits. But just, yeah, you just keep – and that's what happened in that game. They keep – knocking on the door and finally there was an error involved, but they, they finally scored some runs. So uh, I get it. It's frustrating, but you'd much rather have, again, the guys on base and um, then, then just not even getting guys in scoring position. By the way, um, back to your original thing a minute ago, and you, you called the right name all this for sure. Andrew Joby hit into 14 double plays that year. Okay. I was trying to be nice. Yeah, well, uh, it happened, but uh, you had yeah. Gomez hit into nine, Loftus hit into nine. Um, Gomez ran fairly well. Loftus, I guess, was okay. Giovi was, you know, a catcher and a first baseman for a reason, although he did steal eight out of nine times that year. So, in any case, they stole they stole eighty out of one hundred and five bases that year. So I don't know that it was a slow team. I mean, and, and typically. Tim's teams aren't slow. Sometimes that's just bad luck. And that was that was one of those years. That was the year before the year, and they really came on at the end of that season, and you could see better things happening for 2011, and that's really how it played out. I think that was just a, a team that was coming into its own and, and caught some tough breaks. Uh, they get Gomez, Esposito, Casale, Westlake, Harrell, uh, all back for the next year, and that team goes to Omaha. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that well. Um... And uh, Joby's one of those guys. I don't know why I thought this, but he's one of the one of the surprises that he turned out to be a good player. I don't know. Maybe he was highly recruited. I I just remember he's from Maine, and I don't know. I had no expectations for him, and then he ended up being a, a really good hitter and actually a guy who could do you know what he he caught some, played the outfield some. He's a pretty versatile guy. I think Joby came in with Flaherty. Is that correct? Yeah, maybe it was just sort of like Flaherty was the good guy from Maine, and this is just you know just kind of coming along for the ride. But he he was a good player. Well, and I believe he redshirted on that 07 team, I think. Um, and then, yeah, and yeah. then he, you know, didn't play much. And then by time, you know, a lot of guys by the time they're in that fifth year. Now, it's, it's different now, right? They they recruited a higher level now than they did then, so you can't do that anymore. But I think you, I think you summed it up well there. Mitch, any parting thoughts, anything on baseball or, or whatever else that we didn't get to today? No, this is something that um... – Maybe Vanderbilt will look up or Tennessee will look up or um, we could you could look up. Tennessee's obviously playing some good baseball. When they play in a couple weeks, will it – when's the last time, if there was ever time, that, that Vanderbilt and Tennessee have met in any sport when both are ranked in the top ten? And I guess it's not out of the realm that Tennessee could be ranked in the top five. My guess is there's been some women's tennis matches when both teams have been ranked in the top ten and maybe some basketball games in the 70s. Um, but that, that, that's all I could think of. That is going to be a really good series in a couple of weekends. Uh, Tennessee has got a really good team. Um, 
two walk-offs yesterday. Yeah, and George is another team that's walking a lot of people off too, I think. But, you know, here's the surprising thing. Right now, the West was supposed to be where it's at. The East is pretty crazy because you could argue— East is plus eight against the West, I think. I I know. And, and look, some of that is— well, I don't know what some of it is now that I think about it. But um, you could argue right now Florida's the fourth-best team in the East. In fact, I think I would, especially after Carolina swept the Gators this weekend. I know it was in Columbia, but still— it's a sweep. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think the the, the Friday night game, you, 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 I was kind of following their game, and the SEC network was kind of was going to live updates, and you felt like, oh, South Carolina, they, they rallied. They, they can steal a, a game from Florida. And, but then after that, they just kind of own the series. So that was, uh, yeah, and Kentucky's 5-1. and one. They swept one at Auburn. I don't know how good Auburn is this year. So the, the standings are weird. There's There's more – Really good records and more more bad records. Usually at this point, it seems like everyone's you know three and three, four and two, or two and four. But there's a lot of five and ones and one and fives. Florida to me is the wild card in all this because Florida looks to me right now like a middle of the pack SEC team. But sometimes those teams that are elite maybe can take a little time to gel. Although they wouldn't seem to be the kind of team that that has to fit in that category uh, because they had so many returning guys. But that's the thing that's probably the biggest surprise to me. I really thought we'd see Florida win this league, and, and look, that I, I don't think that's going to happen at this point. I think there's there's just too many good teams in this league, and, and right now they just look ordinary for the SEC rather than like the, the, the top of it like we all expected. Yeah, and, and it was only one series, but it's it's playing out how you want when you you take two of three from a team like South Carolina and then have them go, you know, uh, sweep a team that's good. You know, Vanderbilt will have any tiebreaker against them. I don't think South Carolina is going to be at the end of the year battling with Vanderbilt uh, for, for the East title. Um, but, you know, and, and teams can get hot, but it, this is not breaking news, but you you just don't want to get swept. I mean, that just kills your record. You know, sweeping someone does so many so many things and, and getting swept kills you. And um, I know I was on the road there, but that was, that was a tough series for Florida. Anything else before we end the show today? Uh, I think we're good. I think we're good. Um, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's about it. Well, I know Joe Rex Road has got an article on facilities up at the Athletic. I want to give you a chance to promo that. I know you talked about it a little bit already, and anything else that's coming up that would be of interest to our audience. And of course, give out your Twitter handle if folks are on Twitter. Uh, I would encourage you to follow Mitch. So anyway, Mitch, the floor is yours as we end the show today. Yeah, um, it's at Mitch Light. Got a fun story coming tomorrow by Josh Kendall. I was involved. I uh, helped him, you know, a little bit with the rankings, but it's his story. He's our South Carolina writer. But where we rank the fifth, and we can talk about it next week. We rank the 57, basically since 1992, SEC expansion, there have been 57 coaching hires in the SEC. Now, we didn't do any, like, Clark Lee's not on it. I think the parameter was you have to have two coach at least three full seasons. So like Dan Mullen, that 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 group is on it. Anyone more recent's not on it. Where we we rank the hires based on basically you know obviously how that coach did, but factoring a lot of things like how the program did before and after. So uh, a lot of fun. So some some random names. Guy like probably hadn't thought of Guy Morris in ten years, but you'll you'll be reading about Guy Morris if you check out this story. Well, I think that obviously we all know who one is, and I think that Steve Spurrier's got to be in the top five. Um, well, Spurrier was not Florida. It's Spurrier at South Carolina. That's Spurrier what I meant, hired. yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because so, of what yeah, he but did. That's, that's one thing. He was hired two years before SEC expansion at Florida. If he, if he 
were hired at Florida after SEC expansion, he would he wouldn't be number one, but he'd give the number one guy not to give it away too much. He'd give him a run for his money. That's got to be a thing that that had to be dozens, maybe hundreds of hours of research to put that together. It was a lot. I did the basically it was perfect for me because I did the research. Then I lent it. I dumped it on Josh's lap and let him put the byline on it so he can get all the criticism. <laughs> I like the way you think, Mitch. Yeah. So. All right, uh, Mitch. Thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you next week. All right. Sounds good, Chris. All right. He's Mitch Light. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Main Sports Podcast. Episode coming later this week.